Revelation chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 12 through 17. If you would stand as we read together. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore or else, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we come and approach your word, we approach it the same way we do every time we open it. We approach it as your direct words to us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we read them, we would understand it just like that. That you have something to say to us, and we want to listen, we want to hear it. There's lots of thoughts and lots of things going through our minds, maybe that... Uh, have preoccupied ourselves this last week. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us just to remove them off to the side so we could hear clearly from your word. Would you help me, Lord, to get out of the way so that the people only hear your word and not my own? Because it's, it's to your praise and to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Do they love Jesus? Do they love Jesus? This is a common response I've been getting from people recently when people have been confused as to whether or not somebody's a Christian. They ask me this question, well, do they love Jesus? And if they love Jesus, then of course the simple answer would be yes, that they are Christians. If such a question were to be asked to the church at Pergamum, there would be a resounding yes. Of course, we all believe in Jesus Christ. They remained faithful to Jesus in the midst of persecution. And Jesus himself, he acknowledges this. In verse 13, he says, You do not deny my faith. These are facts that Jesus himself is saying. You do not deny my faith. Then why in verse 16 does it say that he is coming to wage war on some of them? So we come to the church at Pergamum. You see, in Pergamum, there were, there were different um, levels of Christianity, if you will. Levels of commitment, rather, to Jesus Christ. There are, of course, these uh, kinds of Christians who are rock-solid followers. Guys like Antipas, who says here in verse 13 that he faced death, and he faced it like a martyr. And, of course, he was killed as a result. We don't know how Antipas was martyred. It doesn't say in the text here. Stephen was martyred by stoning. Uh, James was martyred with a sword. We don't know how Antipas was martyred. But he stuck it out with Jesus Christ, even in the face of death. Again, we don't know how he was martyred, but his epitaph, written by Jesus himself, is clear in verse 13. My witness 
my faithful one. And Christians like him, they really stood out from the rest at this church. It is true that the whole church is described as having a commitment to Jesus Christ, though, as we read there in verse 12. To the church of the angel in Pergamum write, The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. He's saying that to all of them, to all of them as Christians. You hold fast my name. So it is true that in a general sense, they all held fast to Jesus. But within this group of solid Christians, there was also another group of Christians that were syncretistic in their belief system. They were syncretistic. They believed in Jesus Christ, but they were also adding another religion to it. And we pick it up here really in starting in verse 14. I have a few things against you because you have there some, some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat, three, eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Did you catch it there? He's not saying the whole group of Christians. He's saying there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam. There are some who hold to the Nicolaitan teaching. And if they do not repent, I'm coming to wage war against them. So within this church, there's a second group of Christians there who had embraced Jesus, but they had also embraced heretical teachings and practices. Now, like Bryce mentioned last week in Smyrna, just like in Ephesus, Idolatry was all over the place. It was hard to escape it. And Pergamum was the same. They had to deal with this pagan idolatry that was all around them. It says here in, in the text that Jesus says, I know where the throne of Satan is. We don't know what he's referring to in particular, but it could be on the top of a hill in Pergamum, there was the Acropolis. And there was a temple uh, with uh, idols there, and some were uh, fashioned into serpents. And it could be this likeness to the serpent, the throne of, I know where the throne of Satan is. It could be that he's referring to the idolatry, hence the image of the serpent. We don't know specifically. But some of the Christians in Pergamum had caved to, to this secular inf influence of idolatry. There were some, it says here, who hold to the teachings of Balaam. They hold to the teaching of Balaam, and they hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you have your uh, pencil with your pen or whatever and you're taking notes, just jot down Numbers 25 and Numbers 31. The teachings of Balaam is going back where Balaam counseled the Israelites to participate in the worship of Baal. We don't know what the exact teachings of the Nicolaitans were, but they're put in the same category of Balaam, so it's probably something similar. So what did it mean then to hold to the teachings of Balaam? What did it mean in practice, this pagan idolatry that Balaam was uh, uh, counseling the Israelites to go into? We pick it up here in verse 14. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. In idol worship, there's a combination of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. This is very common. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary, he puts it this way. 
feasting on sacrificial meat and licentious, licentious conduct were usually accompaniments of worship of idols both in the Old and New Testaments. These two are always or quite often held together. And we don't have to look very far, even in the text, to see where this is also in Thyatira. Look down in verse 20. The same kind of thing happens there. So they commit active immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There's the two combined again. And if you remember back at the, at the council in Acts chapter 15, where they're coming together, and the Jewish people were saying, no, these new Christians, they need to follow the law. And they had this big debate. You remember the debate in Acts 15. And at the end of it, James says, it's our counsel that we don't put any burden on them further with the law. But then he says some strange things, what he tells them not to do. Don't eat any things that strangled by blood or fornication. Why is he combining those two things? Because we're talking about participating in idle temple feasts. That's what he's telling them not to do. So in, in this idolatry, as we find it here with Balaam, and in our text here, they were eating things that were sacrificed to idols, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and also committing acts of immorality. They had the testimony of Jesus Christ, yes. They did not deny him, yes. Jesus himself makes this clear. But they were also part, uh, partaking in idol worship, now, this seems kind of strange to me. Like, and it must seem strange to you to imagine somebody on Sunday going to church and being with Jesus Christ and maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday going off to another worship service, but this is in a temple. It's hard to imagine this. That's the exact thing that was going on in Corinth. Turn back with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read to you a section there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 19. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be, become sharers in demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What's he saying there? When he's talking about partaking in the table, Lord, what's he talking about? What we did last week, participation in communion. That happens in a worship service. This is all throughout the New Testament. This is what believers did. When they came together, they, they shared in the table of the Lord. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you can't partake of the table of the Lord and also the table of demons. What's he talking about? He's talking about in a worship service, in an idol temple worship service where there's things sacrificed to to idols, meat sacrificed to idols, and a part of that worship meant that they were feasting on this meat, and also some kind of actions of fornication or immorality as well. Now this is so hard for me to get my head around. How can professing Christians, even by Jesus' own testimony, say, you didn't deny me, how could these same people also be participating in idol temple worship and this feasting? I can't fathom it. But maybe we might ask a similar question with some of the churches and denominations these days who are promoting homosexual behavior as Christians. Decades ago, decades ago this wouldn't even be considered. Homosexual 
practice and Christianity are incompatible. You can't combine the two. And there is argument after argument going on out there that says they are compatible. And we need to adopt it. I never would have imagined that even my own denomination would be struggling with this. And yet there's rumors of a couple of churches out east who are actually uh, um, encouraging this kind of idea. This notion of homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality. It's what it is to be loving to one another and so it's okay. This wouldn't have even been part of my pastoral conversations decades ago. And yet, these days, I am pushed into this conversation more often than I ever want to. Now, how can this be? We think it's really clear as you're looking back at, at the Corinthian church or at this church here in Pergamum. It's clear. What are you guys doing? But I wonder if some of them will look at us and go, what are you guys doing? The scriptures couldn't be more clear. It's the same scriptures that talk about slanderers. It's the same scriptures that talk about liars that talk about drunkards. There's no confusion on this biblically. So how does this happen? How does this happen when it creeps into the church? It's when the voice of the culture around us is more powerful than the Word of God. It's when the voice of the culture around us becomes more powerful than the Word of God. And how does it become more powerful? Because we give more airtime to it. This is why the community of believers is so important it's so important that we stay together, that we encourage one another, that we spend time in God's Word. The God of the Bible doesn't say we shouldn't associate with secular people. In fact, it says we, we need to. We need to associate with secular people so we can tell them and show them what it is to live like a follower of Jesus. But not as our community of context. Not as our community of context. The community of our own context, those who are closest to us, should be those of the Christian community as we influence one another to walk in the way of the Lord. In Pergamum, these Christians somehow believe that they can adopt this other religion of pagan idolatry and have Jesus Christ at the same time. The more we listen to the culture around us and more, and I shouldn't say this, not the more we listen to it, the more airtime we give to the culture around us, you will be influenced by it. It's not if, but when. So this second group of Christians, they are warned by Jesus himself. Repent of this syncretistic religion. You need to ditch idolatry and immorality and temple feasts. You repent, Jesus is saying, and you come back to me, and you come back to me alone. If, if they chose not to, it says here that Jesus is coming with judgment. Did you pick it up there in verse 16? Going back to Revelation. Repent therefore or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'll make war against them with the, with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is not talking about some future end of the age kind of judgment on this church. He's talking about imminent judgment from Jesus that will happen to them if they don't repent. Now, the act of judgment of God uh, against wayward people is nothing new in the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible, and you can find it anywhere. And if you're taking notes, it's all throughout these Revelation churches. Chapter 2 and verse 5. What's the act of judgment? I will remove your lampstand. 2.16, he says here, I will make war against them. 
Chapter 2 and verse 22. He will put them through great tribulation if they don't repent. Chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus will come upon them like a thief. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus will spit them out of their mouth. He's not talking about a judgment at the end of the day. He's talking about judgment that's imminent. These are all forms of the active judgment of God on people who are wayward Christians. Now the manner in which Jesus could carry out this war against them is not the point. The point is, is that he will. Again, this is nothing new in the Bible. If you're taking notes, there's a really key verse in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. It says the judgment of God, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Not it will be. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Yes, the patience of God is tremendous. And the patience of God, even here in Pergamum, is beyond what we can even fathom. The grace of God is, is beyond what I can fathom. These practices of idolatry and immorality were currently graciously being tolerated by Jesus. He doesn't say they're not the church right now. He says, you repent or else I am coming. But as we've seen already in Ephesus, God's grace may cover sin for a time. But it is only for a time. It is only on the basis of His grace. So in the church, we've had two kinds of Christians so far. We've had these rock-solid followers of Jesus, people like Antipas goes right through to the point of even being martyred. And we also have these Christians who seem to be um, supporting idolatry along 